The sermon text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 through 28. And there we read, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places year after year with blood not his own, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. As we noted in the previous verses last week, this section, this passage, uh, began by asking, answering the question, why did Jesus have to die? And the answer that this portion of Scripture provides is that Jesus is our covenant mediator. He is the one who died in our place. The Bible says that he is the one who bore the penalties of our sins. He bore those penalties for us. And as a result, he has fully satisfied the justice of the Father on behalf of his people, on behalf of those for whom he died. And this was necessary, as we see We look at verse 22, just one verse previous to the passage we read. This was necessary because, as Hebrews says so clearly, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so this is why when the Bible speaks of Christ's death, it emphasizes that it was his being poured out for us. His blood was shed for us. And this is also why Jesus' words before his death are so significant, the very words that he spoke to his disciples. When during the Last Supper, Jesus held the cup and he said these words, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. By speaking of this blood of the covenant, Jesus was pointing to the fact that in his death, he would bear the penalties for our sins. His blood would be shed because of the covenant offenses of his people. And so that's what Jesus, that's why he died, The question I want us to ask this morning is, what has Jesus accomplished by his death? 
We know why he died now, but what has he accomplished by his death? What has resulted as a result of his death for you and for me, for all those who know him and trust in him alone? And we see in our text three points that the inspired author emphasizes for us. First being that by his death, we now have access to God. We see this in verses 23 and 24. There we read, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So in these verses, the inspired author is explaining to us why you and I, those who trust in Christ, can be sure that when we die, we will be received into the presence of God. And not just received, but received with joy and with gladness. And this is uh, important for us to, to understand because it's not automatic or universal. It's not that every person that has ever lived will be received with joy and gladness in that last day. The Bible teaches something very different. It teaches us that God is holy and that we are not. And that in order to enter into God's presence with joy and gladness and not to fear judgment and wrath, we must be as holy as he is. We must be covered in someone else's righteousness, an alien righteousness, because we don't have that holiness of ourselves. This is very different, isn't it, from what our culture teaches, what our culture and many around us believes. Because many for the most part, say that you know, everyone uh, goes to heaven. And uh, many non-Christians we know have very different ideas of what heaven might be like, different interpretations, different conceptions. But kind of bit boil it down to the fact that most people believe that if there is a heaven and afterlife, everyone pretty much gets there as long as they are not really, really bad. Murderers, uh, usually, you know, the example of Hitler is thrown around, right? Um, as long as you're not that bad um, and you do some good in your life, uh, or, you know, the, the old saying, if you have a good heart, um, then you're pretty much going to uh, go to heaven when you die. But the Bible says that that is not true. The Bible, again, says that God is holy. And we are not, that even the nicest person in the world, the kindest person in the world, who is outside of Christ, is under condemnation and wrath, because even the smallest sin deserves God's condemnation. And not only that, but we know that we are born into sin. We have inherited the guilt of Adam. That has been imputed to us. That has been credited to us. So all are born under condemnation and wrath. And so, loved ones, what hope then can there be? Why can we ever hope then to appear before God without condemnation 
and wrath, without that fear upon us. Well, the inspired author explains our hope by comparing what happened in the Old Testament when the priest wanted to enter the presence of God. The ceremonial law required that the parts of the tabernacle be purified with blood from animal sacrifices. That there in the Old Covenant, in order for the priest to be able to enter into that most holy place safely, without facing wrath and judgment, he had to enter by the blood of another, by the blood of a sacrifice. And we see this in the instructions that God gave Israel in Leviticus chapter 16. This is a very well-known chapter that describes the Day of Atonement. And among the instructions in Leviticus 16 is that the high priest was to take the blood from the goat that was presented as a sin offering for the people, and he was to take that blood and sprinkle it on the different parts of the tabernacle. And he was to do this in order to atone for the people's sin because the people were unclean, and that meant that that tabernacle was unclean, and so it had to be cleansed by the blood of a sacrifice. We read about this ceremony in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 15 through 19. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do it with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat, and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, and cleanse it, and consecrate it from the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. Leviticus chapter 16 is explaining that the sprinkling of the blood was needed because of the sin of God's people. And by sprinkling the tabernacle and the various elements of the tabernacle with blood, God's people were, as a result, given access to him, to be able to enter in and worship him. And the good news that Hebrews points out to us who are in the new covenant is that for us, there is even greater access because there is superior blood that has provided access to us as believers. And there's this comparison that we see in our text in these two verses from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. There's this comparison and contrast. We see that in the Old Covenant, 
Only the high priest was allowed to enter into that most holy place, that holy of holies. And that but once a year, following those very strict guidelines of the ceremony that we read about here in Leviticus chapter 16. But, loved ones, in contrast to this, those who are in Christ, those who are in the new covenant, we have greater access to God. We see this in verse 24. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. See, the text is linking you and I. It's showing us the union that we have with Christ, our covenant mediator, who by his death has atoned for our sins, and who now by his ascension has raised us up into the heavenly places where we, the Bible says, are even now ruling and reigning with him. We are seated with him in those heavenly places. The writer of Hebrews is showing us that Christ's victorious ascension into heaven, his entry into heaven has made a way for us, a sure way, that he, we see in our text, now appears before God on our behalf as our mediator, as our great high priest. He's our brother there, living for us, interceding for us, ministering to us, for us. He is for us in every way. Martin Luther, the reformer, he said, for Christ to have ascended, for Christ to have entered heaven, prophets you and me nothing if he had ascended for his own sake. But now our glory and joy is in this, that he went there to our advantage and not to our disadvantage. That Christ is in heaven, Christian friends. He is there on our behalf. He is there as our high priest ministering to us. And look at what the text says, not in a copy as the earthly tabernacle was, but in the reality. He is there in heaven itself, having accomplished our salvation. And so we need to remember that we must understand and believe the Bible's view of heaven and not our culture's view of how heaven is attained and uh, why we are granted entrance into God's presence. Even when we think about the way that heaven is described in our passage as the true thing that is not a copy, but is reality itself, what we see is that heaven is a place that is in the presence of God himself where we will be with the Lord, looking upon him face to face. It is not a place where only nice people go, but it is a place that those who trust in Christ and trust in his righteousness alone will go. And so we, as we consider what the Bible tells us about heaven, must stand on what the Bible says, the way that it explains it, the way that it explains the reality of the new heavens 
and the new earth. That the only way to believe and to have assurance that we will be there in the last day is by trusting in Christ and in him alone, who alone merited uh, heaven. Because just like loved ones, if we return to the analogy that the writer of Hebrews is giving us between the Israelites and the church and the new covenant, just like those Israelites were restricted from entering the tabernacle, that earthly tabernacle, because of their sinfulness, the writer of Hebrews is pointing out the fact that only those who come through the righteousness of another will be received into that heavenly tabernacle, into the new Jerusalem. And so you and I can be assured. We can live every day, every moment, every second with the assurance that Christ is there on our behalf, that he has merited it. He has gained it. He is there enthroned in glory, and he assures us that where he is, we will be also. And as a result of his death that was for us, we have this greater assured access to God. Secondly, we see in our text that by his death, Christ has put away sin forever. We see this explained to us in verses 25 and 26 of our passage. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I'm sure that you noticed the essential point that the inspired author makes here as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The essential point being that Christ's death, that the shedding of his blood of the covenant and his appearance now as our great high priest in heaven is a once-for-all event that changes everything. It is something that changes all of history, that changes everything for you and for me. And he contrasts it with the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement that we read about in Leviticus 16, that Day of Atonement that had to be repeated annually in the Old Covenant. And he shows there that there is a difference between that and Christ's sacrifice because Christ's sacrifice was once for all. In fact, the very repetition that we see of those sacrifices in the Old Covenant pointed to the fact that they were ineffective to permanently remove sin from God's people, to fully and finally atone for the sins of the people of God. But we read in Hebrews chapter 9, the good news that when Christ came at the end of the ages, when he came at the end of the old covenant, we read that he accomplished fully and finally what those old covenant sacrifices merely foreshadowed. And by his death, he has ushered in the new covenant that is better, we know, because it is based on better promises and it grants better benefits to 
believers. Look at verse 26, the way that Christ's accomplished work is described for us. We read there that he has come to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And that term, to put away sin, is an important term because it's legal. It means that Christ has dealt with our sins, that he has fully and finally removed them from us. They are no longer on our account. That debt is no longer there. That he has permanently done away with them. This is exactly what Isaiah was prophesying in the passage that we read for our first reading from the Older Covenant. As Isaiah prophesied about the suffering servant who would come and bear the sins of many, that he would take their sins to his account and he would bear them upon his own body. And loved ones, for the first century audience of Hebrews, that audience that we know that was tempted to return to the older covenant sacrifices, this passage points to the foolishness of returning to those old covenant sacrifices, knowing now that the full and final sacrifice of Christ has been made on the cross. To do that, to leave Christ, to abandon Christ, and to return to that old covenant would be to leave the only way of true forgiveness, the way that God has made for man to be reconciled to him. And for us this morning, For us this morning, you know, we might not be tempted like that to uh, return to the old covenants. But, you know, we are tempted uh, to doubt that Christ's sacrifice has truly put away sin forever. You might be a, a new Christian here this morning. And as many of us remember, uh, when we first became Christians, um, when we really understood the gospel and the salvation that we received through Christ, there was this great honeymoon phase. And then after that, the difficulties began. The struggle with sanctification and the temptations. And as new Christians, I want to encourage you this morning that you need to know this never ends, that sanctification is a lifelong process that is never fully perfected in this life, but you will have, and you have God's sustaining grace every moment of every day as he is working in you by his spirit to make you more and more like Christ. But even as we consider the process of sanctification as as Christians, We must never rest, loved ones, in how well we think we're doing in our sanctification, how much we think we're progressing as a means to have assurance of eternal life. But we are to continue to return our gaze to Christ and the cross and to see that it's only because of that once-for-all victory over all our sin that we have the assurance of eternal life. You may be here this morning and maybe you are a Christian for a long time. Uh, You have been walking with the Lord, but you're having trouble 
believing that your past sins have been forgiven. And this text speaks to you as well this morning. Because many Christians can struggle because they live their lives looking in the rearview mirror. And, you know, as we think about our past sins, there's a good way to think about them and to remember them. As we recall the goodness of God in delivering us out of that sin, as we recall the ways that God has been so good to us to grant us to now desire the things of God and no longer desire the things of this world and to no longer be able to say no uh, to sin. Uh, We can rejoice as we think about our past life, that we are now in Christ. But there is also, for the longtime Christian, the temptation to be discouraged over uh, past sins, to wallow in the shame of past sins. And so you need to hear again that once-for-all proclamation of the gospel, that Christ died once for all, for all your sins. And that in his death, he took upon himself not only the penalty of all your sins, but also the shame. So that when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you will not stand in your shame, facing wrath and fear and terror. But you will stand in his righteousness as you continue to trust in in him and him alone. And maybe you're a Christian here this morning who is unsure that you are going to, uh, to make it, to endure to the end. That you trust in Christ, but you don't trust yourself. And I want to encourage you this morning, that's a good place to be. That you know how weak you are and how prone you are to wandering, and so you continue to cast yourself upon the mercy of God. And that is the grace of God, loved ones, working in your heart and in my heart as we continually cast ourselves upon the mercies of the Lord and trust, trust in that once-for-all atonement that Christ made for our sins. And so we don't trust in ourselves, we don't trust in our own Righteousness or performance or obedience or how well we think we're doing in sanctification as Christians, loved ones. But we are always to trust in Christ, who the writer of Hebrews says, appeared in the fullness of time and who by his obedience and death has put away sin, all sin, past, present, and future, once and for all. And so then, What flows out of this trust is our living in eager expectation of his return. That's the third point we see in our text. That by his death, we live in eager expectation of the return of Christ. We read verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. ones, as we look at verse 27, we see that it makes clear the Christian teaching that there will be 
a final judgment for every person after death. We read again, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. See, this verse and the whole of Scripture does away with many cultures' views of death, other religions' views of what happens after death. This verse makes it very clear that there is no such thing as reincarnation. That after death, we see comes judgment immediately after death. And we also see this verse does away with what atheists or, or materialists would believe, the, the philosophy of materialism, that after death nothing exists in this life, that we just cease to be. That this matter in motion uh, simply ceases to be matter in motion and therefore our existence ends. This verse does away with that philosophy as well. Because what it does is it points to the reality of death as a result of of Adam's sin that's imputed to us and, and the guilt of all of our sins. But it also points to the fact that after death, life continues for eternity. And it will either be a life that is eternal and joyful in the presence of Christ our Savior, or one that will incur the eternal damnation of God. We read this summary in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 32, of what happens after death. After death, the bodies of men decay and return to dust, but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal existence, return immediately to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous are then made perfect in holiness and received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory as they wait for the resurrection of their bodies. But, it says, the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness as they are kept for the judgment of the great day. Scripture recognizes no other place except these two for the souls which have been separated from the body. So what we see, Scripture teaches and our confession teaches, that death is a reality. It is inescapable. We know this by experience, by seeing many die that we love, that we care for. And the idea of death, loved ones, is a dreadful thought for many, is it not? It may be a dreadful thought for you uh, this morning. But I want to encourage you from Scripture that when the Bible describes the death of the Christian, the Bible says that for the Christian, the sting of death has been removed. And that as Christians, we mourn when those that we love die, but we mourn not as those who have or who lack hope. That when loved ones die in the Lord, we mourn, but not as those who have no hope. Why? Why is it different for us as Christians than it is for non-Christians? Well, loved ones, because we know that by his death, Christ has secured our favorable verdict with God. We see this in verse 28. Christ, having been offered once 
He was offered to bear the sins of many. See, by his one offering, he has atoned for our sins. And therefore, we have the joy, the eager expectation that when we stand before the judgment seat, we will say and we will hear, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That verdict has been rendered unto us. So loved ones, when we stand before Christ in that last day, Christ who will be our judge, we will behold him with joy, with gladness, with longing, with eager expectation as the writer to the Hebrews says. It will be an awesome sight, but it won't be a scary sight. And this is why even the Nicene Creed that we confess every other month at our church, the way it ends is that it says, we look for the resurrection of the dead. We look for it. We long for it. And we long for the life of the world to come. So how does this then affect us today, this longing expectation of eternal life that we have? What it does, does it not, loved ones, is it brings about a joy and a peace in this life that can't be found in anything else. It can't be found in, in money. It can't be found in earthly relationships. It can only be found in Christ, in the peace that he grants to us, in the assurance that where he is, we will be also. And it also, does it not, causes us to enjoy the blessings of this life even more, to see them as gifts from our God, the blessings of food, blessings of of family, of friendship, of our covenant community. Loved ones, we enjoy these things. We praise God for these things because we know that these are merely a foretaste of better things to come in that heavenly Jerusalem. And this also causes us to be able to bear trials with greater grace and peace, with perseverance, knowing that God sustains us, and that even though death might come, that he will redeem us on the last day. And it also, lastly, must, as a result, it must create in us a desire to tell others about the only way of salvation. Because we know about the eternal importance of the gospel. And we know about the sure return of our Lord to judge both the living and the dead. And so this causes in us, and it must cause in us, a desire to tell others about this reality, this truth. To tell them that it is appointed for a person to die once, and after that comes judgment but to also tell them the good news that God has provided a way of escape from wrath through his son who was offered once to bear the sins of many. And for those who trust in him, he will surely save them to the uttermost. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for the joy that your gospel grants us in this life, that our hope is not only for heaven, 
but our hope begins even now as we trust in Christ, as we rejoice in the good things that come from your fatherly hand. Lord, grant us to be those who trust always, who persevere to the end, and who live with a longing expectation, saying with the church throughout the ages, come, Lord Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.